Hello and welcome to a special extended episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael C. Today I chat to a conductor who also runs a superb mentoring programme while continuing to be one of the world's greatest sopranos. Even though she came to conducting late, she is definitely making up for lost time and stunning audiences the world over. Through a mixture of bad internet connections, three aborted attempts to chat and a persistent bird singing in the background, I did eventually have the pleasure to talk with Barbara Hannigan. Barbara, what a pleasure to speak to you. <laughs> nice to talk to you as well, Mike. Um, if I can, can we go right back to the beginning and yep. find, out, find out your very first, earliest musical experiences? Right. So the, the first um, experiences that I actually recall were uh, being at my mother's knee with my twin brother, Brian, and my sister, Sheila, who was 14 months older at the piano with my mom and my mother would have been singing with us, teaching us songs, accompanying us at the piano, you know, music play. Mm. And that's what I recall. And then even earlier than that, my mother had kept cassette recordings of her doing the same kind of thing with us when we were, you know, before we could speak, mm. basically, mm. because um, she has recordings where we're singing melodies with her, but we don't know how to say words yet. So <laughs> I always like to think about that as music really being the or or the primal language, you know, yeah. that that was our first language. And and that's um, I'm so happy that she kept those cassettes because you, you can't you know, you can tell that we can't speak yeah. yet. And yet we we are all reproducing these melodies and um yeah, so that was that was that's my very very earliest memories. How wonderful! Um, and yeah. I'm assuming because she was a pianist, she taught you the piano to begin with. Yeah, she um, she played the piano. Her mother played the piano. Her mother's sister played the piano. It was quite normal where I came from, which is Nova Scotia, and and specifically from a little village called Waverly. Uh, you know, a lot of families had a piano, and it was a real um, community kind of. Uh, culture, you know, a lot of music making in the home. And let's remember, this is in the early 1970s. So it's before the internet, we didn't have any public transit. So people were more stuck to their communities. So we started with with piano lessons with my mom. And I guess around age four or five, uh, my sister and brother and I started taking piano from the woman that lived up the street, which was a, we lived on a dirt road by a lake. It was very beautiful and picturesque. And so we started lessons with her. And then around age five or so, five or six, we started piano lessons with a really good piano teacher named Marion Lightfoot. So Mrs. Lightfoot lived about 15 minutes away by car. And she had quite a good studio of, of pianists of all ages, right up to pre-university level. And one of the special things I remember about my lessons with her, and I took lessons with her until I was 15, before I switched to yet another teacher, um, was that she did ear training with us before every lesson, so before we started playing. So we would have to come in, we had to kneel in front of the piano bench, she would check our harmony homework that we'd had to do from the previous lesson, and she would train us with intervals and chords, and we had to sight sing, and we had then later to sight read at the piano. And these skills, these are things, of course, that 
have become the cornerstone of, of my musicianship. And I thought that everybody did this. No, they didn't. Yeah. <laughs> my, yeah. my, my first violin teachers didn't do that until I was doing grade exams. And then it was just a way of earning some extra marks. I wished I had that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I really could sight sing extremely well. And, and, and it, it's something that is so handy for me now. I mean, I remember at a certain point later on in my studies as a singer, I actually had to slow myself, myself down because mm. I, I could sight sing things before my all the musculature was ready to process what it had to do to be able to sing those really difficult intervals. And so, but um, it's, it, it was certainly something I really appreciated with Mrs. Lightfoot. And, and the other important music teacher at that very early age um, was uh, Miss McEwen. And Miss McEwen was our school music teacher. And she arrived at our little school at the end of the dirt road in Waverly, Nova Scotia, uh, when I was about six years old. And all we knew was that we loved music class and we loved singing and there was a great joy and a great inclusive spirit in our music classes. What we didn't know was that both of Miss McEwen's parents had studied at Juilliard, that she herself had perfect pitch. Um, she was a, an impeccable musician and had a wonderful sense of discipline and passion for music. And all we knew was that we just loved, loved everything that she did. And one thing that I, I really love as a memory of her classes is that instead of kind of putting the kids at the back or asking them to mouth the words, those that might not have been able to hold the pitch very well, because we had quite a high standard of music making and I can imagine she wanted us to all sound good for our school concerts. Instead of asking those kids to be silent, what she did was she put the strong singers like me always in between two of the weaker singers. And we knew that we had to carry them with our sound. So we had a responsibility. Um, and I loved that because it was for musical reasons, but it was also, it also gave this wonderful sense of community and communion and instilling in us that that is also what music is about. Was it always singing or did you um, take up any instruments? I guess it was around age 10 that I added another instrument to my studies, which was oboe. I won't talk very much about that because I was not very good at it. <laughs> there, was, there, was no one, there was no one near us that could teach me to play the oboe. And as you can imagine, with no internet, um, it's not the kind of instrument you really want to figure out how to play from a book. So um, I did keep that up until age I guess age 17 or 18 I did keep playing but it was clearly not uh, where my talents were were headed and and then of course when I was 15 I started taking um, singing lessons and it was clear for me at that point that I, I definitely uh, wanted to pursue singing as my main instrument and up until that point I, I knew that, okay, I want to become a musician. Is it going to be a music teacher or is it going to be a performer? And what instrument will I play? And so on. But when I was 15, I knew that I wanted to become a singer. And so I was slowly narrowing things down. Um, I was going every summer to, to Nova Scotia choir camps, to piano camp, to band camp. I mean, music was really the focal point of my life. And 
we had wonderful high school music teacher, Ron Murphy, and our school would travel across the country and go in competitions. And we had a jazz band and we had a symphonic band. Like we didn't have any strings at our school. It was a rural school. So only in the city would, would they have strings. But even then it was, it was limited. You know, my sister actually became and still is a professional cellist, but that's because she went to the city to have lessons, but this was not available to the kids where we were. So everything was like, you know, wind bands, right? And um, so this was like, it was definitely clear that I was going to have the musical life. And I suppose the, the big change after that was at age 17, when I applied to one of those performing arts high schools, like a fame high school. And that was in Toronto. So Toronto was two hours away by airplane from where we lived. And so I applied to this school and for, to, to do my last year of high school there. And I was accepted to the school. And I went there and I, I majored, I did a double major. So I had to take like chemistry and history and English and all that stuff. But um, my two majors were theater and music. And within that, I was putting on plays with the theater department, even writing multidisciplinary plays and so on. I mean, it was quite full on. And in the music department, I was singing, I was um, doing orchestral arrangements for the school musicals and playing the piano, accompanying my friends and so on. And a little bit playing in the orchestra as second oboe, um, <laughs> just because they had no one else to do it. But I mean, then it was clear that singing, okay, now I know I'm going to really sing. And then I, at that age, also in Toronto, I, I finally found the teacher who would be my main teacher for the next uh, 10 years. And that was a woman named Mary Morrison. And she was the professor, the head of voice at the University of Toronto. So she took me on as a teenager, still in high school. Um, and I think as she tells it, it was because, although I still had a pretty young instrument, um, she loved my musicianship. And she knew that I was a really good musician. Um, and that for her was very important because she um, was married to a composer. And while she had sung, you know, Mimi and La Boheme and Countess and so on, she had also premiered countless works in contemporary music. And she'd worked with Ligeti and Stockhausen and who had come to Toronto for these modern music series. So she always wanted to have really good musicians in her studio. So she took me on at age 17. And then I just continued after high school on into the University of Toronto. And I was majoring in voice. There was no other direction for me at that point. I knew I wanted to sing classical music um, pretty early into my university studies. I knew that a large part of that would be contemporary music. Um, I loved contemporary music. And when I looked around me, I realized that I was definitely in the minority as far as the singers were concerned. Like there were not a lot of other singers at the school that that wanted to premiere the works of young composers or that were going to hear the modern music concerts that were happening in Toronto. So, so I knew that I had a kind of um, like a noblesse oblige towards uh, the music of our times. So I, I, was, I was singing all kinds of classical music, um, but I knew that I, I was going to be spending a large part of, of my talent and discipline working with composers. So, now I'm at age 18 and I'm in university and that's how I'm spending my time. 
And would I be right in assuming that that would be where you would have sung the first of your nearly 100 world premieres? Well, actually, my first world premiere was while I was still in this performing arts high school. And because we had to do a final recital, and I commissioned a composer who had since graduated from the high school and was now in university. I commissioned him to write uh, some songs for soprano and piano, and I premiered them at my final recital. So I was 17 at the time. Mm. And, uh, and then shortly after that, um, when I was at the university in Toronto, I became involved in a collective of performers and composers, a professional collective called Continuum, who were looking for a soprano. Um, so I ended up being the soprano as, as and, and, and performing, and, and it was paying my rent, actually, mm. um, to, to be premiering new works by young, young professional composers in Toronto, and working with other modern music groups, multidisciplinary groups in the city. So this was kind of the, the beginning, and I think by the time I finished university, I'd probably, I probably had premiered at least 15 or so, maybe more, maybe wow. 20 or 25 new works. Yeah, I mean, I was really, I was very busy hmm. and, and I loved it. I mean, I loved working with, with composers and, and, you know, this kind of interesting way of collaborating where you're, you're the channel for them hmm. and there's a different balance with each composer as to what kind of involvement you have in the piece. And even as a young singer, I was starting to discover that and also to discover the psychology of collaborating with a composer, how to communicate and how to, you know, to be this, in a way, a kind of midwife for the piece, you know, yeah, that's a good because term. you have to, yeah, you, you have to bring it into existence and you, and, and you have to take it at a certain point. You have to take it from the composer and you have to, carry it in a, in a, in a way that they, that they can't, mm. you know? So, so it was really something very extraordinary to be experiencing from age 17 onward. And I would imagine using your midwifery metaphor, <laughs> it, <laughs> it's, it's even nicer when uh, the composer is writing specifically for you. Um, mm. that the, your voice, they've heard your voice, they've got your voice in, in mind and they write something that is, totally for you a gift for you it must be a real joy to do that yeah I think for the most part it, it was really joyful and and I also I kind of also enjoyed the difficult experiences because mm. you're you were I was just learning all the time and learning like about I mean you learn so much as a as a young musician you learn about poetry and politics and philosophy and <laughs> And, and not only just harmony. I mean, you learn about interpersonal relationships. And I mean, there's a really great book by Marshall Rosenberg about nonviolent communication, which yeah. has been <laughs> integral to my life yeah. <laughs> as far as dealing with with this business of being a, a you know a performer. And and so yeah, I I really I really value those experiences, especially in the early days when mm. I was working with composers that didn't have a lot of experience writing for the voice because one had to find a way to describe uh, the possibilities of an instrument mm. and because there are many many wonderful books written on uh, writing for instruments you know I, I would 
I remember there's a really good one by Mancini on orchestration, you know, mm. but there are not so many good ones on how to write for the classical voice. And so, and a lot of composers, even the, the ones that were teaching composition, were not great vocal writers. And so trying to figure out how to explain um, how to write for a soprano when there are 15 different types of soprano voices, it's really interesting. So you you leave and you're now starting an international career as a singer. And throughout this time, I'm assuming you were concentrating solely on honing your craft as a soprano, uh, operatic skills, all of that sort of stuff. And at no point was conducting in your on your radar at all. No, I mean... Sometimes I did engagements where we didn't have a conductor, so I had to lead. And I think anyone that knows me, even from my childhood, I was often the person to lead something. I mean, right. didn't have to be musical, but I just had kind of natural leadership affinity, let's say. But no, I didn't, I didn't really think about conducting because I, I just wanted to get really good at singing. Mm. You know, I... After I finished in Toronto, I went on to Holland, mainly was the next big stop for me. And it was there that I started really gigging and starting to work with major composers and then starting to work with major conductors. Mm. And I think maybe one of the first major conductors that I was working with was Esapekka Salonen. And I remember when I sang with him the first time, it was something like 2002. I remember I had never stood beside um, an energy like that. And it was very interesting to me because it was like, there were no words that could explain it, but it was like an ocean, but it was mm -hmm. like an old ocean. And that's, there was something, and I guess that's, I remember those were my thoughts. I kept thinking of him like the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and it had something to do with an, an old, um, an old power, and something very primal and natural, um, and something about how he took the energy from the orchestra and sent it back. So mm. there was a there was this flow, and I remember thinking that that from the very first time, and it, it was extremely moving to me. And then I would look at other conductors that I was starting to work with soon after that, and try to figure out what it was, what was the element that was so that worked, you know, mm. because I was so fortunate. I got to work with some really, really special conductors very early on, like um, also Simon Rattle and, of course, Reinbert DeLeo was a huge, mm. huge influence on me as a conductor, also as a recital partner. Um, and they all, I mean, if you look at what they're doing up there, it's very, very different. And somehow it was all always effective and always yeah. inspiring. And that's something that it made me want to sing better, you know, and it made the players want to play better. So there was something very attractive to me about that kind of music making. And there did come a point when it was suggested that maybe I wanted to try that myself. <laughs> um, before we get to you trying it, when you were singing with these great conductors, mm. were you taking it all in, or even, for instance, possibly taking notes on 
what you were seeing, what you were hearing, what they were doing? Well, I usually took notes during rehearsals. Uh, yeah, not because I had an eye towards conducting, but just no. because I, I was just so infinitely, and still am, curious about what my colleagues are doing. Mm. And so my scores are like, they're, they're just completely full of, of uh, what the conductor was saying to the players or what the composer was saying to the players, whether it was Oliver Nussen or Pierre Boulez um, or Ligeti or, um, for example, in my score of Plis Salon Pli, which I, I did with Boulez on his last major tour, um, anything that he said to any instrument, I wrote mm. down in my score, I put the date uh, and his initials by it, so it was very clear who had said it and when they said it. Wow. And I, I had the same with, with Dutilleux. I mean, I worked with Dutilleux since 2002. And everything that he said, I notated in the score and when it was changed, because we changed a lot over the course of uh, 10 years of working together. Mm. And so this was, yeah, I was really involved. And I always worked from full score. Um, I usually memorized everything I was singing. And I think the musicians in the orchestra they they knew that that I knew what they were about to play, I think, which made an impression. What what an amazing um, history to have written in your scores to be able to look back on yeah. um, of what these amazing composers and conductors said. Um, my God, mm. I wished, wished over 22 years I'd written down the quotes that people had said to me when I was playing in the orchestra and then I could have oh. lifted them out. What, yeah. what, a, what a incredibly sort of encyclopedia of, of knowledge that, that that we get from working with these people so closely. Um, yeah, it's extraordinary, and yeah. and I think I think also the the difficult times, the struggles are really interesting because those are the times when you have to break something. It's like mm. training at the gym, you know, to build muscle, you have to slightly tear it. Yes. And, yeah. yeah. And. That's something I say to young artists a lot, like courage. I talk to them about courage because they think I'm fearless, and I'm not fearless, but I am kind of, I do have some courage. And, but you have to tear the muscle to build it, and so you have to risk that, and you can't, you can't break it, but you ha there has to be some kind of, there is an effort in it. And so I, I often found these experiences when I, I could see that the orchestra and the conductor were struggling for communication. This was also... A fascinating thing to watch and experience yeah, yeah, yeah. or when I yeah. yeah my colleague said to me you know when I first started conducting you know you'd go out for a uh, a breath of fresh air in the in the morning break and somebody say to me now that you've just seen how not to do it when you become a conductor uh, you know and sometimes yeah. it would be, you learn more from the bad experiences than you do from the good good ones sometimes yeah um, yeah there's something and also of course I was also watching the way that composers and orchestras interacted. Mm. And this was very interesting because, of course, I did see often, um, let's say, mild hostility between, <laughs> yeah. between yeah. players and composers. And one of the things that I learned from Reinbert DeLeo, who I would say was my biggest mentor in my whole career, um, was and he he had, of course he had started the Schoenberg Ensemble particularly to allow composers to have a voice and to have an ensemble that was willing and eager to play their music and to represent them. Mm. And he, Reinbert always said that you have to allow the composer to say what 
whatever he or she wants. Yeah. And not, I mean, to forget the manner in which it is said, because it's, you know, composers spend a lot of time alone. They're putting their DNA on the page and then they go out there in front of an orchestra and sometimes, you, you know, I mean, it's it's nerve wracking. And especially if they're being met without, with, with some, let's say, hostility or, or even just skepticism or just simple misunderstanding, there can be tension. And so to make sure that you create a situation where the composer can really say whatever they need to say to the orchestra and that it is heard, that, that's a hugely important lesson. So going back a little way in the topic of conversation, you said that somebody convinced you to have a go at conducting. <laughs> yeah. Um, who was that somebody? Who, who, can we, who can we thank? Who can we blame? <laughs> no, no, who can, who can we thank? <laughs> well, you know, what had started happening over the years was that I was doing more and more engagements where the works would get larger and larger and yet there would be no conductor. And this was often in Holland that I was doing this because I was living, I lived in Holland for 20 years. And there were some conductors that said to me, you sing like a conductor, mm. <laughs> which is a kind of funny thing for someone it to is, say. Yeah. Yeah. But what they meant was that I was, I was showing them where they needed to land their downbeat by the way I was breathing. So, and I knew that. I mean, I was actively doing that for them. Yeah, I, I thought yeah. it's easier for them if they know where I'm going to land this, so I'm just going to show them that. So there was a, a kind of... I was splitting myself in, in, a, in a way like anticipation and being in the present. And mm. then, of course, thinking ahead a little bit. So I had this way of working with conductors and, and then there were some presenters that also had been seeing this kind of leadership in me and I had a, maybe a, an important point um, in my career was when I was singing the Dutier piece Correspondance, which I'd sung many times, and I was doing it with mm. Court Mazur on a very last minute jump in for another soprano. I was doing the piece with Court Mazur and he wasn't... Uh, so well anymore. He, mm. his, his, his hands were not working the way they should have. And he wasn't well. And so in the rehearsal, it was with the uh, orchestra of Radio France. Mm. And after the rehearsal, the head of the orchestra, a man named René Bosque, he, he had he'd known me for several years and he said, you realize you just conducted that rehearsal? And I said, no, I didn't. I didn't do any. I, I, my hands were at my sides. And he said, yeah, but you, you did it with your eyes and you did it with a shoulder and you showed everyone how it was going to move and when it was going to move. And you were even indicating this, you know, in a, in a, mm. in a humble way, but in a, in a way that was somehow clear to everybody that needed to know. And I, I understood what he meant. And yeah. he said, you know, and I think he brought it up with me before, but he said, I really think you need to, you need to try conducting because I think it's in you. Yeah. And so I credit Renee for that because um, he then, we talked about it and, and it was his idea that I do the Ligeti Mysteries of the Macabre as a sing conduct. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he also thought that a good piece for me to start with as a conductor would be Le Renard, The Fox, yeah. by Stravinsky for four male soloists and a chamber orchestra. And so once he had established that I would be interested in doing this, he set it all up. 
Um, he put um, my official debut, uh, I suppose, was at the Châtelet in Paris as part of this big festival. Um, and there were three weekends of performances at this festival called Présence, 2011, I think. And uh, one weekend I sang the Ligeti Requiem, Asapeka was conducting. And another weekend I sang a piece of Asapeka's. And then the third weekend I conducted this Finnish orchestra that Asapeka had started called Avanti. Yeah, and I yeah. conducted, yeah. And I, I conducted them uh, in, the, in the Renard. And I also sang and conducted the Ligeti Mysteries of the Macabre. So that's the first time that I conducted. Um, and it was a very, I think it was a very important feeling inside because, you know, three weekends I had been in the same dressing room going down to the same stage to perform twice as a singer and once as a conductor. Mm. And the, I always had a, a relationship <laughs> with performance <laughs> anxiety, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as a singer, I, there was a kind of childish fear Mm. Um, but also a childish kind of petulance in performance that one has a certain freedom um, within the, the confines of the music but there's a, there's a certain kind of yeah, there's a certain kind of spontaneity that exists, I think, as a, as a <clears throat> singer at least in my feeling even if I'm singing the most mature repertoire mm. but as a, when I was about to go on stage that first time as a conductor I felt something parental now, how could I use the word parental? I, I didn't have kids, mm. so, and, but it was, it was not male and it was not female. And I remember thinking parental. I remember thinking that word. And, and it, it, I was very emotional in a way, um, but in a way of feeling responsible mm. um, to, to, make yeah, sure yeah. Everybody, to make sure that everybody would be okay mm. and, and to make sure that everybody would, would achieve their potential. You know, that's yeah, the feeling I had. Yeah. But I mean, it's such a strange feeling because I never had felt that if I was going on stage to sing Ligeti Mysteries as just a singer, I, I just was going on. I was like a horse ready to jump out of the stable, you know, and, and start the race. I mean, that was a very different feeling. But going down to, to conduct, it was another feeling like I have to make sure that everybody is at their best and yeah. that I can help them. And, and it was a very... Even when I describe it to you now, I still feel that I have the memory of that feeling in me. And it was the beginning of, you know, I didn't know it at the time, but it was the beginning of a whole new stage of my life. And at the time, I literally had agreed to conduct this one event and yeah. had been working up to achieving that particular goal. I didn't imagine that I would be taking, you know, a career well, changing career in a way or, or modifying my career in such a way at the time. It was literally just one engagement. But after that, of course, everything did change. Isn't it weird that there is a different feeling? I'll use the word nerves rather than stage and oh, performance anxiety. Yeah. That nervous feeling is different. Yeah, I remember yeah. The, the first time I ever conducted, I had a very similar feeling. Um, stood, you know, the orchestra uh -huh. had gone on and, and I was stood there on my own. Yeah. And in a position I'd been in before as a violin soloist, but with the violin solo, nerves were almost physical for a week beforehand. Whereas this, I just stood there thinking, yeah, I was nervous. Of course I was nervous, but it was completely different. You know, I, yeah. I wasn't worried so much about me anymore at all. It was, I was worried about the whole thing. As you said, it's of the uh, 
parental is a very good word, but you, you know, you're thinking about everybody on the stage. You're thinking, you know, and the nerves were totally different. And, and from that moment on, I thought, you know what, this is, I'm happy here. Yeah. This is a, this is a much different feeling than, yeah. you know, I remember the pre previous month I'd played a concerto with an amateur orchestra and I, I stood off stage waiting to go on thinking, what am I doing this for? You know, I am <laughs> physically ill. Whereas I, yeah. I couldn't wait to get on as a conductor and get involved and, and be part yeah. of that, that thing, you know. Yeah, um, it's funny. It's so, it, it, it changes. It's like it has a different center of gravity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, fascinating. So mm. a one-off gig, or so you thought. Yeah, yeah. Then what were the next steps? Well, it was a little bit classic in the way that, like, literally the next day, you know, or maybe even the same night, because, mm. I mean, it was at the Chatelet. There were a lot of people there, like yeah. a lot. Esapeka yeah. was there. I mean, it, it was really... So literally, I guess at the dinner afterwards or, or the next morning, I started to get... Pe people were getting in touch and saying, yeah. would you like to come to my orchestra and make a special program? And... So it, it moved quite quickly. And the thing, the thing is, is I, I still had a full-time career as a singer. And, of course. You yeah. know, and so I somehow started fitting in engagements as a conductor and started making programs with just, you know, learning one piece at a time that I could possibly do with my limited skill set and, yeah. you know, my musicianship. Yeah. And... I uh, so I started with these special programs, and I would I would have, let's say half the program would be purely instrumental, and half would be, I would also be singing. So I would do a few Mozart concert arias, or I would do Ligeti Mysteries quite a lot because it was a really good, of course, it was a really good calling card, but also great for the orchestra. They all wanted to do that piece, and yeah, yeah. the effect that it has on an audience is pretty extraordinary. So. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, I would I would do like a, a couple of Rossini overtures and, and early pieces that I was doing were like the Peleas and Melisande suite of Foray or Ligeti Concerto Romanesque and the Stravinsky Two Suites or the Stravinsky Danse Concertante. And then I moved on to the Stravinsky Symphony in Three Movements, which was kind of a huge undertaking. for Tricky piece. You know, yeah. yeah, a great piece. I mean, I just I adore that piece. and. Mm. And so, yeah, little by little, I started to, to really uh, get my feet wet. And, but I was always still singing on a program. And in the first uh, year of conducting, I, I didn't really have any lessons, per se. Mm -hmm. I had some advice, which was helpful, from some generous colleagues that I, I could call without being afraid that they would just say, what the hell do you think you're doing? You know, <laughs> so I had a few people that were like Andre de Ritter and Johannes Debus that I would call mm. and say, you know, they showed me how to mark up a score. They'd give advice about something. And, and that was great. Um, and then it was around, I guess, December in 2012 that I was going to do Facade uh, with Simon Rattle. So Simon mm. and I had worked a lot together with Berlin Phil since, I guess, somewhere around 2007 and other orchestras. And so Simon had the idea to do William Walton's facade, which is for two speakers and six or seven musicians. 
uh, instrumentalists. And so Simon thought it would be a good idea that he and I did trade it off between being conductor and speaker. Mm. And so we did it as a late night in Berlin. And it was really fun and it worked very well. We actually did it twice. We did it a second time uh, uh, three or four years later. Yeah, three years later. I, and... I, I can recommend to any listener to uh, try and find it on the Berlin Philharmonic Concert Hall. It's brilliant. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's two yeah. versions, I think. Yeah. There's, the, yeah. there's the blue dress and there's the black dress. <laughs> and I'm talking about my dress, not yes. Simon's. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, but it was after that first time that I remember I was at Tegel Airport the next morning heading back to Amsterdam. And I called Simon to thank him and... And he goes, you know, you should really take some conducting lessons. <laughs> and I thought, that's a great idea. Uh, and he, but he said, you know, because I have a feeling you're not going to stop. Like, you're yeah. going to keep going with this. This is going to become a big part of your life. And so his suggestion was that I, I go to Yorma Panola in Finland uh, yeah. and that I learned some technique from Yorma. And then Simon said, and then, you know, you and I can work after you've got some, some technique under your belt. Yeah. So he called up Yorma, or, and Yorma seemed to have agreed, and then I called up Yorma, and Yorma knew who I was because I had often been in Finland performing um, various things. So he, I, he might even have been there when I did the, the gig with Avanti. Mm. He, I'm sure he'd heard about it. So anyway, I went to Finland, and I would have lessons with Yorma, I think over the course of maybe 18 months or, or two years, something like that. And I would bring in pieces and we would have a pianist and he would just watch me and I would conduct the piano and he would correct things like mm. seemingly simple things like don't bend your knees too much or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, how, to, how to give an upbeat, you know, and, yeah. and, and the different analogies that he would use, very simple. Um, and yeah. don't stick your neck out and, you know, don't, and he would just say, you know, you look like a kangaroo or you look like a chicken. <laughs> so stop doing that. You know, and yeah. that... <laughs> uh, having, having spent two weeks studying with him in Russia on an intensive course, they're all things I remember him saying. Um, yeah. Especially yeah. the bending, bending of the knees was a very Bending of the thing. knees. Yeah. And, and moving well, one feet. Yeah. I remember him screaming. He lost that battle. Yeah. 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 Oh, right. <laughs> well, I think he did with me as well, but yeah, I, I remember him screaming at me one particular morning, stand still, his voice rang yeah. across. Uh, you know, a man <laughs> of very few words, but he, you know, yes. when, he, when he used them, you, you, you took notice. Um, and I, I always, yeah. when, I mentioned, when I mentioned him to my conducting students, I, I basically say that going to see him was like Luke Skywalker going to the Dagobah system because he is the sort of Yoda character amongst... Uh, well, he even talks features. like Yoda. He does, yeah. He, he does, does <laughs> because he speaks in a very Finnish way and he reverses the verbs and so on. Yeah. So but I mean, I didn't have to endure any public humiliation, which I think is mm. in a way, at least not, a, not a, in those lessons. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was great for me because I learned a lot from him. I also remember he would give fishing analogies and that, you know, <laughs> the hook, hook um, like casting the line. And that was helpful for me because I actually know how to fish because I grew mm. up on a lake. And so, you know, he used, he found ways to communicate, which, which were very helpful for me. And, um, and then later I even sang Mahler four under him which was really nice with the Avanti Orchestra because I was curating their summer festival in 2014. So I invited Yorma to come conduct me. Mm. And that was, that was actually a very moving uh, experience mm. for him also to conduct these Finnish musicians who had known him 
for many, many years. Um, so I, I was working with Yorma and then um, at a certain point I, I started having some coachings, I would say, with Simon mm. Rattle. Um, and again, we also worked with a pianist um, and that was, that was very helpful. I, I had to thicken my skin a bit because, um, <laughs> you know, it's Simon Rattle and, uh, yeah. Daniel da, da, Harding came out with two or three wonderful lines from Simon. The Simon's <laughs> ability to build you up with the first sentence and then knock you completely flat with the second sentence. Um, I'm sure, he, yeah, I'm sure yeah. he didn't mean to do that, but no, but it's 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 a wonderful way, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, yeah. You, know, you're, you know, you're really brilliant, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and so we worked on on various pieces, and that again, only pieces that I was preparing to conduct, you know, mm. and and also we there was one session we had which is quite helpful where I was working on Mozart concert arias that I was going to sing and conduct I think it was Bella Mia Fiamma and that's kind of a difficult piece for the for the orchestra because it has these accompanied recitatives and mm. I really enjoyed that because I was also learning about singing Mozart with Simon which I've, I had never done Simon and I had always done modern music together with Berg, Ligeti, Dutier, Webern mm. um, but to get to do some Mozart with him was was really fun, and and then I also uh, was having coachings with David Zinman, and in the case with David, uh, we didn't work with a pianist, and he didn't watch me conduct. Sometimes we watched some videos of me, which of course any conductor watching themselves on video is just completely <laughs> embarrassing, but um, we sat side by side and we would sing through the score, mm. and. Every once in a while we would stop and I would ask him a question, but then we would continue to sing through it. And, and it, was, it was also interesting because I worked on the symphony in three movements with both Simon and David. And there were some um, interesting differences, mm. uh, which I found wonderful because my respect for both of them was so big and is so big. And um, it was nice to see, okay, like I, I respect both of these. Um, approaches and at a certain point I'm going to have to find my own you know yeah yeah, yeah. absolutely but so I was gigging and and taking lessons and that's kind of like the life of a singer because a singer takes lessons for his or her entire career like most yes. singers have a singing teacher until they stop so maybe it's the one instrument that is continuing in that way for their entire career so it's very normal for me uh, to still have conducting lesson to have conducting lessons and be gigging at the same time and I I still am I mean I'm always calling somebody up for advice on any new piece that I'm doing I never go it alone you know well, I, I think it's it's important that yeah um again having spoken to Daniel I know that he told me that he he started having serious conducting lessons again so sort of 20 years into his career yeah, um, with Mark. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and yeah. we were saying then that it seems utterly ridiculous that more conductors don't do this. That if Federer can have a coach, and um, you know that uh, Ronnie O'Sullivan, the world's greatest snooker player, can have a mental coach that he uses, uh, Doctor mm. Steve Peters, the author of the Chimp Paradox. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, if these people who are at the top of their game in in sport still have a coach, why don't conductors have somebody like that? Well, they, you know, they, it's almost as if the, their ego is too big for them to say, well, I can do this on my own. Well, sometimes you can't. Sometimes you, you need that help. You need that, that an arm around your shoulder or just something to say, yeah, you're doing OK, actually. You're doing fine. Yeah. And I think it's also, I mean, 
something again that Reinbert DeLeo said to me when I first started conducting, because I'd already been working with him for, oh gosh, I'd been working with him for 11 years as a singer, and he was conducting Mm. me before I started conducting. And something he said is that he was always wary of why someone wanted to be a conductor, especially if they wanted to become a conductor as their first career. Mm. And it's not the case with everyone, clearly, but he he did feel that um, one had to very seriously look at themselves and to know themselves and understand their relationship with power and ego. Mm, uh, because, true. yeah, because the one has to approach power with humility and any leadership position with humility. And that's, I think, something that there are not so many jobs um, where one is a leader and people can't, some people can't really speak back. Um, Mm. You know, section leaders you can talk to, but the people at the back of the string sections don't normally speak up, right? Um, And so, but this is a rare situation. There are not that many jobs where someone talks at you and you can't talk back. That you can't be in a dialogue with them, so it. I think it creates a power situation that has to be very uh, respectfully handled and dealt with. And I think that's what we're seeing mainly nowadays. And certainly, the people that I love working with um, handle it very well. And, yeah, I agree. I, I yeah. agree with that. The the days of the dictator have finally, thankfully, gone. I think. The... Yeah, and I think what I've the productions where I've you know, where I'm admiring um, the, the conductors that I'm working with. It's just, it's a kind of, again, it's that communion that I had in the music room when I was six years old. You know, mm. it's that kind of feeling of making music together and we are doing what we have to do to achieve that and to serve the score or to serve music. Going on, talking about people that you like working with, and there's yeah. a, a chemistry. You're now principal guest at Gothenburg, and yeah. you work regularly with Ludwig, um, yeah. an orchestra in, based in the Netherlands, and the Munich Phil, Danish Radio. Um, how did those relationships start and, and blossom? Yeah, well, maybe what's an important thing to mention is it was just after the conducting debut in 2011 that I got an agent Mm. and this I mean most of my singing career um, had been done I mean I was more or less managing myself and I I did have a relationship with a very small agent in Holland but it was more someone that just handled my contracts that came in so the idea of working with a real artist manager let's say didn't happen until 2012 and that was because I realized that there was no way that I could handle all the administration that I was going to have to be doing and my my singing career and the the paths that I wanted to explore as a conductor I couldn't do it by myself and I needed a real proper manager Mm. and so that I moved to Harrison Parrott and that was a very helpful um, and eye-opening change for me at that time and so 
Jasper brought me into contact with some orchestras that I hadn't worked with before, and one of them was Gothenburg Symphony. And uh, so I went to them in, I guess, 2014 um, to conduct a program. And we kind of hit it off. And after that, the players asked me if I would be their artist in residence for two seasons later, so for 2016, which meant that I would come and conduct a program and I would sing it as a soloist on a couple of other programs and I would curate, you know, and so that, that was also a very rewarding year of experiences at which point the, the players committee and Gothenburg is a very, you know, many of the Swedish orchestras have very strong players committees that basically run the orchestra, you know, mm. they have their yeah. management, but it's kind of like Berlin, you know, very strong for, uh, what are they called? The Forstand. Um, and so they wanted me to be their principal guest conductor. And I felt that that was the right place for me um, to take my first, let's say, official position. Um, and it was a place where, of course, you're not, you're not in hiding because everything they do is on their, their own digital concert hall, GSO wow. Play. But they're very willing players. I, I love their mentality. Um, I love that they have sectionals the second day of every rehearsal, um, which is qu quite often done in Sweden. But just it's so beautiful sectional rehearsals every second day in the morning for the first hour and fifteen minutes. It's just great, and I just love the work work ethic. I loved how we had a, a really um, wonderful chemistry, lots of humor, and lots of uh, also a dialogue, so that the, I felt like the players could really tell me what they needed. Um, and they knew me as a performer. There was a mutual respect. So it was, um, yeah, I mean, we've just started the, let's say, the, the position this mm. year. And then the other orchestras with whom I have this relationship are Munich Philharmonic. So I'm there usually three weeks a year with Munich Phil. And I wouldn't have expected that me and Munich <laughs> Phil, who I... I in my own stereotype, I would have thought of them as like a very traditional orchestra, you know, maybe conservative. Why would I match well with them? And I had sung with them once in 2012 with Lauren Mazel. And yet, from the first time that I worked with them as a conductor, it was a very moving experience. And wow. the players were very open and free and yeah, it's, uh, I always look forward, I mean, it was so frustrating to be in, in Stockholm on March 10th, about to fly to Munich, just recently, yeah. uh, to do a wonderful program, Copeland Music for the Theatre, Haydn 90, and the complete Pulcinella, and 15 minutes before I got in the taxi, it was off. It was called off yeah. because of the coronavirus, and so, oh, and because I was just aching to be whack with those musicians, and um, mm. and the other orchestra that I I now have, I guess, like the equivalent of a of a principal guest position or artist in residence or whatever is is the Orchestra Philharmonique de Radio France, and again, it started the same way. You know, you, you it's chemistry. I mean, you feel it, and and for me, it always has to be player driven. I never want to go no. to an orchestra if I'm being asked by the management. It has to come from the players. And even the first several years that I was with Harrison Parrott, I would not allow them to put me on their conductor roster. So right. I needed the requests for me to come to conduct. It had to come through the musicians, and it had to be spread by word of mouth, as mm. opposed to any kind of machine. Um, managing machine or whatever agents work it had to be 
really from the creative core driven in that way. You've avoided the the hamster wheel of uh, endless one night stands or first dates or guesting or... Well, the, at first I think, you know, I mean, Jasper and I had a really serious, Jasper Parrot, my, my manager, mm. he and I had a really serious conversation about that because that was starting to happen. And yeah. sometimes it was it was very enjoyable. Um, Stockholm Radio Symphony, Danish Radio Symphony, for example, and and Gothenburg and 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 Orchestra Philharmonique de Radio France. I mean, these that was an orchestra that I had sung with a lot anyway. But uh, or Santa Cecilia also that was a very positive relationship. But there was one uh, concert, and don't don't even need to say which orchestra it was with. But it made me never want to have another first date again. And it made mm. me want to stay close to home and develop relationships with orchestras that I knew. And I guess every conductor can say at some point they have encountered an orchestra that for some reason it just didn't click. And mm. But if it doesn't click and it's a bit disappointing, that's okay. Uh, or if it if there seems to be a kind of um, negative chemistry and mm. that's what I experienced once and I think every conductor has had that and you just can't forget it I mean it just gets no. into your skin under your no. skin and and so it made me a bit shy about having first dates unless I knew the orchestra or unless I really felt like they wanted me to come and that I wasn't part of an agenda by anyone by either their administration or by an agent or a festival that it really had to be player driven and I, I think that's I think that's so wise um, yeah uh, and it's wonderful that you're in the position to be able to say that um, you know I've, I was very lucky that I went a long way through my career until I, I encountered again a situation like you described but they, it was borderline hostile you know yeah. and and it and it it, it, it it invades your every thought of that week while you're there. Yeah. Uh, and you just think you forget the reason why you went in the first place, which is to make music with people. And, yeah. you, and, and so, yeah, it, it, I was lucky in the fact that it, it, it was a very long time before I had another one of those. You know, in the end, you know, I walk away from it thinking, look, there's plenty of other orchestras out there that I've always got on with. I've got a very happy list of people that we work with and, and it's a great relationship. So it's going to happen now and again, you know. You, yeah. Not everybody likes every single morsel of food that they eat. So, you know, don't expect it to be the same when you're working in this, these situations. That sometimes you're going to come across a Brussels sprout, <laughs> yeah. in my case, uh, yeah. or whatever it is, or a herring. You know, they, yeah. they're, they're two, two foodstuffs I can't abide. Um, and <laughs> and so, so it's going to happen. It's going to happen in your life at some point. Yeah. But, yeah. And I, I, it's funny because I was, at the time, I felt really ashamed that I hadn't been able to to make it work yeah yeah I, really, I, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I felt really bad about myself and mm. and then but I dared to speak to other conductors to to Vlad Jarovsky about it or to, to Simon about it or and then they would all just kind of have a wry smile and <laughs> share their memory of when that mm. la when the last time that happened to them and and it's never the same, you know, and then if they say, oh, I had it with this orchestra, and I say, oh, I love that orchestra, you know, it's, mm, it's so yeah, interesting. Yeah. It and, is, yeah, yeah. But I think this openness about, you know, um, the generosity and working, for me, I really 
need to work from a place of abundance and from a place mm. of generosity as opposed to work from a place of lack. Not what is missing, but what do we have to work with? And so that's why I also I really I love when the that I've created a situation or that the orchestra already has this situation where the players are are free and open in a dialogue with me and with each other because then we're working from what everyone is offering as opposed to waiting to be asked you know they offer and that is that's just for me that's really the only way to work So, we're now an international soprano singing all around the world. We're now also conducting and conducting people pretty much all around the world. So you decide you're not busy enough and you're going to invent a mentoring program um, called Equilibrium, um, which I, I've read up and seen films about and think is a wonderful thing. Yeah. Can you tell us about the start of Equilibrium and also who you got involved with it as well? Because I think that's yeah. also very important. Yeah. So, um, yeah, maybe it was a bit crazy um, <laughs> to to kind of get a new initiative going when I already had more than a full calendar. I felt like I had two 75% jobs already. Yeah. And then, which took me to 150%. And then I decided to do another 75% job on top of that, which was Equilibrium. So I... What I wanted to do was because I, I think anyone that's been in the business for a long time, maybe not anyone, but many people um, express a feeling of uh, joy and gratefulness that they're still there, you know, yeah. like I can't believe I'm still there and that they love this uh, world of, of sound, of music that we're in more and more and more. And that's how I had been feeling about music and I realized that I had enough clout um, that I could start paying it forward as we say you know start giving back some of the generosity that I had been experiencing from all these people that have helped me along the way and that continue to help me on the way and so I created a mentoring initiative called Equilibrium for young professionals and I wanted it to be for professionals as opposed to young artists or training program. I didn't want it to be a YAP, a young artist program. I really wanted it to be for professionals, mentoring for young professionals in that first substantial phase of their career. Because I think in any field, whether it's you know business or medicine or music, those first years when you're a professional and all of a sudden one day you were a student and the next day you're a professional, it's tough, it's lonely, it's isolating, and it's full of... Um, pitfalls and confusion and also triumph and mm -hmm. so I felt that this would be somewhere that perhaps I could be of help and I could engage others to be of help and so I went to several different orchestras that I was working with um, I told them about the project I said that I I had certain pieces of music that I wanted to do with uh, young artists. I wanted to do The Breaks Progress by Stravinsky and I wanted to do the Mozart Requiem. This was for the first season. And so I got Gothenburg Symphony, Munich Philharmonic, Danish Radio Symphony, Ludwig Orchestra from Holland and several festivals um, including Albra Festival and Ojai Festival in California on board to say okay yes we will be the orchestras and we will produce and 
so this was wonderful. And then I sent out, created a whole website. I mean, I was pretty well doing this by myself. I had hired a young assistant to help me with some administrative work, but basically I was doing it all myself. And I put out a call for auditions. And, and so I would be in a different city and I would stay one or two extra days in each of the cities, Stockholm, Zurich, London, and Paris. And I had invited applications. So I had 350 applications from 39 countries. There were video, a motivation letter, and a curriculum vitae. I then watched everything and read everything and chose 125 applicants that I would hear live. And then once I'd chosen those applicants to hear live at the auditions, they didn't only get um, walk in, sing your two arias and get out. They stayed and they were part of a mentoring session in which they had the chance because most of them were auditioning because they knew who I was and they knew something about my career so gave a chance for us to have a dialogue in groups of six people at a time um, to talk about the business and whatever I could help them with and I mean the conversations were very intense um, not just stuff about how do I get an agent or what roles do I sing but really how do I deal with the loneliness or how do you sing when you're grieving you know I mean it was very it was really full-on and 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 very moving to realize the kind of dialogue that is possible. So I chose uh, three casts for the Rake's Progress and two casts for the Mozart Requiem. And then, so this is one aspect of, of equilibrium or EQ, which is the performances and working with major orchestras um, in these engagements and preparing for these engagements in, in what I would say is a very holistic way. And part of the preparation for the engagements are workshops. And these took place in Paris uh, mainly in Paris, and they were workshops in which we were, of course, studying the music, but we were also working on our discipline and passion for music in building not only a, what is going to be a successful career, what we hope will be a successful career, but what is also deeply satisfying to us as artists and musicians. Mm -hmm. So there is an element, there's of course this, this element, the, the, the Nietzsche element of, of, of being true to one's own nature to become yourself through your art so that you find your own nature through your art. And I think for me, um, this has been achieved, you know, through generous help from other people in various fields. Mm -hmm. And one of the fields that I'm very interested in, of course, is sports psychology. Because as earlier I said, you know, I've dealt with performance anxiety or nerves, as you know, you yeah. can say whatever it is, but yeah, just yeah. that absolute fight or flight feeling <laughs> when you're on stage. And, and yet here I am, like, all I want to do is make music. And sometimes just before I go on stage, I think, what was I thinking? Why did I have this career? You know, I just want to run away. So, so really building through sports psychology and through mental discipline, um, my focus and breath and strength and then bringing in uh, an Olympic coach named Jackie Reardon who works with amateur and professional Olympic athletes all kinds of different people also in business now and also working with musicians on on focus and this connects to meditation it connects to a positive outlook it connects to the breath of course eye control breath control um, body awareness to the most minute muscle movement 
um, and where we're holding tension. And then the other thing that I have with EQ is that I bring in guests to talk. And we do really honest, frank dialogues, Q&As with people like Natalie Desai and with Daniel Harding and with Casper Holton, who used to run the Royal Opera House in in, uh, London or with the head of the Alpha Record label, Didier Martin, or with an agent, you know, where yeah. our group can really ask these people anything. And having access to basically a, a, a mentor, like putting, putting Daniel in the mentor situation with people that he doesn't know, but yeah. he knows me. And so there is, a, there is an openness and um, an incredible, I, I think it's just unlocking the natural generosity that everyone has within our community. Um, it has our, really, it's been great fodder for, for a lot of learning in the last few years. I think it's, it's wonderful. Um, first of all, that, you know, you're, you're asking these people to come and give talks and be honest and frank in Q and A. Um, it sounds like you've chosen all the right people. I love also the sports psychology, link with music um and it actually thinking about it it's a real two-way street because you know the music is now listening to sports psychology but i I had a situation uh, two situations where i got some cricket coaching Mm. which which i could then take back to orchestras because of the terminology that they use and think actually i can use this the other interesting one was that the head coach of the England cricket team at the time came and watched me work to see how I dealt with the psychology of working with other people who were yeah. highly qualified, as he said. He wanted to see what my approach was, was dealing with, dealing with 100 musicians um, and to see whether he could use any of that when he went back to dealing with 15 people in the England cricket squad. So it is a two-way street. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a fascinating one. And more people should get into it. And more people should should discover how similar the mind, the brain works, at least, and the mind works in that in that case. And then, you know, as singers, obviously, you've got the physical element as well, and conductors, of course. You know, we, it's it's a very physical job. Um, well, yeah, so I, think, I, I think it's wonderful. I, you know, I, I I I'm waiting for more films to be released so I can watch them later <laughs> night and sit there and enjoy them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I even had. You know, sometimes the the sport coach, um, Jackie Reardon, who comes in and and works with young artists, sometimes she would uh, attend auditions or sometimes she would watch an orchestral rehearsal, rehearsal. And she was looking at what we called the shimmer factor. So she doesn't have, you know, she likes pop music. She doesn't know anything about classical music. But she was watching the shimmering of a kind of energy that, that you can apply also to sport and you can see Mm. when that energy drops and has a dip or when it is staying at a certain level of vibration. And that's what she was, um, she was mainly, you know, catching on to. And it was interesting in the auditions because we wouldn't speak to each other during an audition day. But then at the end of the day, when we compared notes, we were often very much on the same path (laughs) as to who we found the most interesting and the most exciting applicants. For the conductor geeks amongst us, I'm going to ask you a two-part question. 
Mm. Uh, how do you go about learning a score? Is it similar to how you went about learning your world premiere scores as a singer? How do you go about learning a score as a conductor? And also, we've heard that you write, you used to write and, and probably still do write things into your vocal scores or your scores when you're, when you're singing. Mm. But how do you mark up your scores? Or do you have a system that you always use? Yeah, so uh, I suppose there is not one method as a singer for learning a score. It depends on what the music um, kind of demands of me. So mm. with some pieces, I can sight read it immediately, and then I'm, I'm kind of slowing down that process for myself, or I'm approaching it in a very technical way, or so on. Um, but one thing that is across the board is that I... I allow myself to be in a very open state in which I can have many different and possibly contradictory influences or mm. inspirations or let's say possibilities, like as if I'm creating a palette um, and they all can come in at the same time. So it may be uh, something technical about um, a very particular sound that I want or a string or bowing or something like you know if I, I always do my own bowings for 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 example for Haydn so it may be something very technical like that it may be something um, an image from a film it may be a color of a painting it may be a, a, a line from mm -hmm. a play uh, or a line of poetry um, and so and it may be a, an emotional feeling and so all of these different possibilities i allow them to come in all at one time it also dealing for me a lot with fluidity of line or of flow and what is the material like if if i think of a piece of music like architecture mm -hmm. so what is the building made of and that again can be very contradictory like this this wall or this this section of wall or this beam can be made of water and then what is the consistency of that water and what is the temperature of the water or is it mist or is it air or is the wood a very light wood like a balsa wood or pine mm -hmm. or are we getting into a very heavy wood like mahogany or cherry so it's really i'm i'm dealing with a lot of different materials as i build and i don't care if they contradict each other and then little by little i make my decision for what would be optimal what would be the optimal construction and what would be the optimal shape and flow um i think it's very important for me to be able to sing the the parts so mm -hmm. i learn i mean that's one of the first things that my conductor friends told me <laughs> when I was preparing this first Stravinsky piece I did was make sure you can sing all the parts. So I learned all the parts line by line by line. So you're learning horizontally and you're learning vertically and then you're also learning diagonally. Mm -hmm. um, and that was something that was incredibly fun when I was preparing the Lulu suite because the score is very much constructed forward, backward, vertically, yeah. horizontally, and <laughs> diagonally. And I just couldn't believe that. I just, I'll never stop finding things in that unbelievable score of Berg. And then as far as marking it up, um, well, that, you know, I suppose I, I have the, the proverbial um, red and blue pencil. And uh, and then the normal pencil. That's yep. mainly what I'm using. I 
I use a lot of Hauptstimme and Nebenstimme markings, whether okay, it's cool. yeah. yeah, even in classical music or I'm so even in a Haydn symphony, I'm very much looking at and I'm all, always more interested in the Nebenstimme than in the Hauptstimme, mm. probably because I felt I would spent my whole career being Hauptstimme, you know, so. <laughs> Um, and so I'm always looking for the inner workings and this secondary dialogue. Um, and I point this out to the orchestra and I usually, I usually talk about that in every rehearsal, um, who I want us to be listening to. Can we hear this person? Can we hear their articulation? Not just that they're, they're there, but can we hear the articulation of that particular instrument? So, um, and then, I think, I th yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, in, uh, just to explain for the for the non-conducting geek, that Hauptstimmer and Nebenstimmer is main voice and then the next voice or the second secondary voice. Secondary voice, yeah, uh, primary yeah. and secondary uh, voice. Uh, and often you will hear the same primary voice give the same, it's the same melody or the same theme and therefore it's nice to bring out the second voice or the second line or sometimes a third line, a second and third yeah. and fourth line. Yeah. Um, so that the audience hears the changes when the, when the first primary voice comes back. I think that's very, very important. It's something I... I immediately go to when I go to a score and think, yeah, okay, we've heard this theme three times now, but what, <laughs> yeah. what, what is what there? Else is going yeah, what on? else is it's, it's different. This is, these are the yeah. things we need to bring out. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, I think that's a very important thing. Incidentally, um, mm. and this is now episode 13 or 14, I can't quite remember, of the podcast, but we're probably 50-50 split between those of us like you and me who use red, blue, and black pencils and some conductors who use absolutely nothing. <laughs> Yeah, um, Daniel probably said he uses nothing, right? Yeah, he uses nothing. Yeah, uh, and, yeah, and, and Simon Rattle uses nothing. Um, uh, Ed Gardner <laughs> uses nothing. And, you, and you, you know, I take my proverbial hat off to them and go, brilliant for you. I can't do that. Um, yeah. But we all have our own, re own reasons for doing it and own ways of, of assimilating all of this information and being able to get it out to the orchestra and then back out, pass you out into the audience. Yeah, I mean, everybody's different. And I think whatever works, you know, I think yeah. a dogma, you know, teaching that everyone must do this, it right. would be kind of, it would be pretty boring if you yeah, saw exactly. a whole bunch of scores all marked exactly the same way. So, Barbara, we come to the 10 questions, the 10 questions that everybody gets to answer at the end of the podcast. And I shall start with the first two lumped in as one. Okay. What sound, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? Well, the sound I love is, has to be associated with nature. Maybe that is for everyone, but certainly as a Canadian who grew up in the countryside in Nova Scotia, which is a peninsula, I would have to say the sound of water and specifically the sound of waves. Mm. That's my most favorite sound. And a sound that I dislike I mean, you said a sound I hate. It's not, it's very hard for me to say I hate anything. Mm. But I could say that I dislike the sound of a car horn because it signifies impatience. So perhaps that's a sound that I don't like. On the other hand, Ligeti started his opera, The Grand Macabre, with car horns, and that was pretty funny. So I did like <laughs> it then. But um, normally I don't, mm. not when I'm driving. <laughs> If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Oh, well, that's easy because I have 24 hours free now <laughs> and, I'm, yeah. and I'm filling it really with exactly what I would like. Mm. So 
it's probably because I didn't say this earlier in the in the interview. Mm. Um, I really love schedules, and this may be because as a very young child, my mother um, made very very intricate schedules which were on the refrigerator for each of her children from the moment moment that we woke up until we went to sleep. And, you know, brush teeth, practice piano, eat breakfast, practice piano, you know. And, and so it was very, even when, when would we play and which TV program were we going to watch? Like Monday nights was Little House on the Prairie at 7.30. And, <laughs> <laughs> and so I still love schedules. So when I have 24 hours free, I would still schedule it because I would want to make sure that I, I had thought about what was important for me to to include in that day. And the way that I'm using my time here in Northern France with Mathieu um, is that we, we get up fairly early. Um, I do a certain amount of administrative work. Um, I'm working on my voice every day. I'm doing a great warm up every day and then I'm working on Mahler 4 and the Messian Poem pour me. Uh, I'm studying scores, particularly right now is starting a new Haydn symphony, uh, 44, and Mahler's fourth symphony. And then I'm spending a lot of time besides score study, reading uh, philosophical, political, socio-historical material around the fourth symphony, uh, leading up to it. And so this is, like, for me, this is just the most wonderful, um, you know, aspect of a time that is also not wonderful, Mm. Um, and then around eight or nine at night, um, we sit down to dinner, which is usually cooked by me and mm. I love cooking. I mean, cooking is one of my favorite things to do. So I, in the morning, I've kind of an idea of what we have to take out of the freezer. And, um, and then I look forward to the end of the day when, when, uh, when I get into the kitchen and I put the radio on and I listen to Radio France and, the music and I start cooking and then I have the evening with Mathieu so it's really a perfect day and you know I the other thing I omitted is that I usually make a few phone calls to my mm. family and that's also very important who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear that's easy because uh he passed away on the 14th of February 2020 and that would be Reinbert DeLeo the Dutch conductor, composer, pianist, the founder of the Schoenberg Ensemble, and really my, my mentor for the last 20 years. And who would be a favorite current conductor? Well, that's difficult because I'm, I have a luxury problem that I, I work with so many wonderful conductors. Yeah, yeah. And I have so much admiration. There's no way that I can choose, I mean, no, that's fine. You know, Kirill Petrenko <laughs> or, or Vlad or, yeah. or Simon or Ezepeka or David Zinman or Alan Gilbert. I mean, there's so many wonderful colleagues. But I did think of one person mm. that I greatly admire, who I only know socially, who I haven't worked with yet, but we will work together in, I think, in about one and a half years. And that is Karina Kanalakis. I think she is a, a, a beautiful musician. And uh, I'm eager to work with her, and I think she's absolutely in this for the long game. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? Oh, yeah. 
Well, I mean, a work can be difficult for the orchestra, but not difficult for the conductor, and vice versa. Mm-hmm. True, yeah. And so I, I think it would have to be the, the Miraculous Mandarin suite of Bartok. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really tough piece for everybody all around, and those, the decoy scenes are particularly mm. difficult. The three decoy scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I will never forget finishing my first rehearsal of that piece. I've done it with several orchestras now, and the first time I finished the first rehearsal of those decoy scenes, and I thought I never have to rehearse these for the first time ever again. You know, get putting that behind me was felt like a real milestone. Of course, I had to go into it the next day, but it was just, oh, you know, breathing a sigh of relief that that first dip into the water had happened. So. Uh, when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, I tend to bring a box of Yorkshire tea with me because um, any Brit that has traveled to the continent knows that it's hard to get a really good cup of tea uh, <laughs> the, way, the way that we like it. And yeah, yeah. Uh, in Canada, we're the same. We like a strong cup of tea. I, I like to have milk and honey in my tea. I sometimes travel with my set of knives but that depends on how I'm traveling because unless I can put it into checked luggage on an airplane I'm not allowed to take it on the Eurostar so I I can't do that every time what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor yeah well I think it's I, I don't think I really have would want to change anything I think what I see happening is 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 very exciting and interesting and for me which is this dialogue between um, the group uh, making music together and I I guess that's very important to me so this non-dictatorial um, mm. hierarchy you know I, I, I believe there is a hierarchy but mm. uh, it doesn't always mean that the conductor is at the top of it <laughs> <laughs> so so I think just having a very healthy sense of collaborative work is is the direction that things are going and that's that's how I'm happy to work what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I can't really say. And it's funny because, you know, I said earlier there have been those moments when I'm about to go on stage, especially as a singer, and I'm so nervous. I think, what was I thinking? Why did I choose this career? <laughs> but when all is said and done, there there isn't really anything else that I would absolutely love to do. There are lots of things mm. I could do. and I, I love teaching anything. And mm. I love cooking, and I'm pretty good at it, and I'm very organized, and so I'm sure I could run something, you know, a community center or whatever, but it, I really, I've, I feel like I'm really in my vocation when mm. I'm making music and when I'm making music with other people. And finally, if the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? Oh, um, so that's easy. So that would be Nova Scotia lobster, um, boiled, obviously mm. not steamed or grilled or anything silly like that. Just boiled <laughs> lobster in a pot with you know some celery, parsley, um, a lot of salt, more than you would imagine, pepper, uh, and um, and then with that I would have both the melted butter and the mayonnaise. Some people are an either or kind of person. I'm the both. Mm-hmm. And 
to drink, I would have an, a nice kind of oily white wine. And there's one that I particularly like. Um, I think it's from the Friuli region and it's called Via de Romans. Um, but I don't really care. I mean, a nice, I do care, but I mean, a nice oily, not, not, a, not an oaky American Chardonnay, but something that's got some, some greasiness to it um, and some that would, that would be able to stand up to the lobster. And the with whom would be with Mathieu and with my family, um, because it's really um, something that I remember for my whole life is having these big family lobster suppers. So that's mm. that would be my last, my final meal. That sounds wonderful. Barbara, what a pleasure it's been. I thoroughly enjoyed our chat today and I hope to see you soon. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Mike. I really enjoyed it. A mic on the podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, we meet another conductor who has a multifaceted musical career. Not only does he have a very successful career as a conductor, but he is also a superb pianist and organist. Until then, bye bye. <laughs>